0: We're joined today by Dr. Gracie King, who teaches anatomy and physiology at Nashville State Community College. She's going to share her story with us today. Dr. King, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Can I call you Gracie?
1: Oh, yes, sir. Definitely.
0: Okay, perfect. You don't have to call me sir. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: All
0: right. Okay. So we know you ended up as a professor and you're one who loves to teach. Yeah. We want. I want to step back a little bit. I want to hear about your journey first as a student yourself. We're going to go way, way back. Where were you born? And tell me what were your parents like?
1: I was born in Petersburg, Virginia, and my parents were very, very young when they married. They actually eloped in high school.
0: Wow! They had
1: not graduated yet. They yes. eloped in high school, and they kept it a secret. And it was it's a, the neatest story. And they're both wonderful people, very, very hardworking. I came along not long after they married, and um, my dad bought a set of encyclopedias from a traveling salesman when I was five months old okay. for Christmas. Okay, which uh, I just think, and and I asked, so I was like, "Why on earth would you get encyclopedias for a baby?" And and they always. They've always told me they wanted us to have the opportunities they didn't have, and they wanted us to go to college, my brother and I. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with those encyclopedias. and I, the, they're one of my earliest memories is just picking an encyclopedia and looking at the pictures. I don't think I n- even knew how to read. But
0: you had those encyclopedias. But I had those
1: encyclopedias, yeah.
0: Your parents eloped in high school. Yes. That's really interesting, brave, yes. and bold yes. to me, I imagine. And they were very young when they had you. I imagine it was pretty hard for them, you know, just to make a living for themselves and this brand-new baby girl they had.
1: Uh, yes. I'm sure it was overwhelming, but when they talk about it, all they talk about are good memories and what an adventure it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, they they started out in a little tiny apartment, I think it was just one room, like a studio, and they didn't have hot water, but, so mom boiled the water and heated everything, and uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, but.
0: So how'd your dad buy this set of encyclopedias?
1: He hawked or sold. Uh, something he had, and I actually don't remember what it was, but my mom said he basically sold one something that they had in order to get the encyclopedias, the oh. money for it. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's like dedication and a commitment to seeing that their child yeah. does have more than they do. So I understand that when you were in the third grade, you were a pretty shy student.
1: Oh, I, Yes. I still am. I just cover it up better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Guess what? I'm kind of shy, too, sometimes, myself. People wouldn't believe it, but sometimes I am. But you're a shy student, but your brilliance was recognized by your educators. You were placed in a gifted and talented program when you were in school. Tell me about that experience and what it did for you.
1: I still don't know who nominated or or who noticed, but somebody noticed something in me. (laughs) I wouldn't say it was brilliance. And... The next thing I know, my parents got a letter, and I came to school, I remember, on a Saturday, and a person I'd never seen before gave me a series of tests. And then I was placed in this gifted and talented program there. It it wasn't a school that had a whole lot, a a large budget. We met in a Winnebago trailer out in the parking lot. okay. It was the best thing that ever happened to me in school because, to be honest, I I didn't have the best time in school. Uh, We moved a lot, and I was very shy. That immediately puts a target on your back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Socially, it wasn't the most fun time, but I lived for those hours that I got to escape and go to the Winnebago, and we had a very dynamic teacher. He made a, a game out of everything, and so we spent the time working what in my mind were puzzles, fun games. And I think now they were probably skill sets meant to teach critical thinking and and improve vocabulary. I know we read a lot. For me, that was just, that's what I lived for. I've I've blocked out most of the rest of my school, except (laughs) when I was in that Winnebago trailer.
0: Those little moments. Moving a lot is tough, particularly for Mm -hmm. kids. When you think about, you know, what your parents were doing for you, what you and your younger brother we're kind of going through moving from school to school and seeing where you're at now. How do, how do you reflect back on that?
1: So we did move so much because my dad worked for the federal prison system. He had finally gotten a job, a better job. Um, every promotion opportunity he could, he we, he took the job and moved and took us along with him. Well, it sometimes was difficult. And and so reflecting back, especially um, by the time I reached high school, it was for me not the best time. But I learned that by the time I went to college, I had learned that I didn't want to be the person who never spoke, which is what I had been for most of high school. So I watched people and I imitated how they would interact and sometimes the topics they would talk about, I paid attention to what people seemed interested in and what people seemed bored by. Mm -hmm. And so it, it gave me a framework to build on where I started challenging myself to put myself out there and do scary things, which for me at the time was speaking to people I didn't know and sometimes speaking to people I did know. (laughs) Yeah,
0: tell them a little bit more about yourself. That's going to be very scary, exposing yourself to, to people you assume are friends, and then in the course of doing it, you do become friends. Tell me about college. Where did you end up attending college?
1: So my parents, again, great influence and they had such big dreams. Had at, at a mall at the time, I'm old enough that malls were a big thing back then. Uh-huh, I remember. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> and they were walking through a mall and uh, there was a college recruitment fair going on in the middle of the malls. We were in a, a gray area financially. We, my dad made too much and my mom was working full-time also. We made too much money to qualify for most financial aid at the time, actually all of it, But we didn't make enough money to pay for the tuition and room and board Mm -hmm. because I was going to have to go away. They were forcing me to. I wanted to stay at home, but they said, nope, we're going to, you know, push you out in a good way, Mm -hmm. like a baby bird. Yeah. And so they were just talking to different recruiters. And this one fellow from Roanoke College, which is in Salem, Virginia, it's in the mountains, it's a small private liberal arts college. It was actually smaller than the high school that I went to. Wow. And he asked my parents questions about my GPA, about me, what I was interested in at the time. In high school I took AP classes whenever I could. They explained I'm not, I didn't play any sports in school and he offered an opportunity to have a full academic scholarship to Roanoke by uh, joining the honors program and then they supplemented it with the Davis scholarship and all we were responsible for was our room and board. And my Dad and Mom were able to pay for that, and then I worked every summer, and also for three years as a resident advisor in order to pay for everything else.
0: You were an RA.
1: I was. An, I was one of those dreaded RAs.
0: Well, well, did you have fun or was it tough?
1: <laughs> it was uh, mostly fun. Occasionally, it was tough because, to be honest, I'm not a very um, strict person. Okay. And so. What was the toughest for me is when I actually did have to meet out punishment
0: and lay down the law
1: <laughs> because I wasn't very good at that. I'm,
0: I'm sorry to do this, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're in college, you're in the honors program for humanities. Mm-hmm. So you're taking English literature, you're mm-hmm. taking history, but you take a biology course, you got to spark something inside of you, right? Yes. What happened?
1: So I went into college as an English major. I wanted to teach English literature. Um, that, was, that was my passion. I loved reading. I loved uh, my first English literature course. I just thought it was the most amazing thing in the world because I, I got to think and analyze. And at the college, the professors there, as part of the honors program, I took a special track. Every class I took we wrote papers and these were not, these were 20, 30 page papers. Mm -hmm. And I just fell in love with it like a duck to water. And so I thought, well, I will be an English teacher. Well, had to take a general biology course and I took it. And then I followed that immediately with actually a, a course on plant biology. And the two classes, it just did it inside. I thought, I want to know how the world works. I think if I learn more about this, this biology thing, that this will help me understand everything, the universe, the earth, life, everything. And I know that was very, very uh, an overachieving, kind of um, overreaching, but I switched my major sophomore year to biology. And um, I also thought that the reading and the analysis was too much fun to actually get a degree in it because I thought you weren't supposed to get a degree in something that was fun. <laughs> it had to be more difficult. And which is silly, but uh, so I became a biology major, but that created a conflict with the honors program because yeah. I was required to take classes every semester that were already mapped out. So from the first semester of my sophomore year, I ended up taking 20, 22 credit hours every semester. To fit in my science classes because I was required to take a biology class every semester, chemistry, general chemistry one and two, and then organic chemistry one and two, and then physics. And Uh, then I also had to take anatomy and physiology and electives.
0: Wow. I mean, so break this down for me. You are there on a humanities scholarship. Yes. You find your passion. You switch it over to biology. You therefore load yourself with 20 plus Semester hours, which is a lot for any college student. What did you struggle with?
1: Everything because okay. that was not a wise decision. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so, I'm a first-generation college student and I did not know any better. As wonderful as my parents were, I-, I couldn't go to them and ask them questions about college. And that was not their fault. It was just simply a fact of the situation. And I was extremely shy. Uh, I still was struggling with that, even though you know I tried to speak up in class. And I had a couple of close students in the dormitory who were who were my friends. But basically, I made poor decisions uh, out of ignorance, out of just not knowing. And and it caused exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, eventually, I became so overwhelmed. I became depressed. Started failing. And I didn't know when it was appropriate to back away, like to stop, pause, maybe take a step back, maybe make different decisions. All I was afraid of was failing, failing my parents, failing their expectations, failing my own expectations. Mm
0: -hmm. How'd you end up graduating?
1: (laughs) By the skin of my teeth. (laughs) Um, I lost my scholarship junior year and they sent a letter home to my parents. My parents were really confused because I had not shared with them any of the struggles, anything that I was going through because I didn't want them to be disappointed in me. And a kind, incredible person, his first name was Bob, and he worked in student life at Roanoke College. And as a resident advisor, I had interacted with him. He was, you know, a, a boss, a way big up boss. And I had no knowledge of this, went to the school, and he said, she needs to graduate, and he paid for my tuition and allowed me to graduate, and to this day, Mm. the immense amount of gratitude and respect I have for somebody with that large of a heart.
0: What was graduation like for you, graduation day?
1: Graduation day was just a blur of joy. Every picture, I'm just glowing and and I didn't think I would actually make it there I graduated with a 2.78 GPA this is not something anybody else would glow about but for me I had my bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. and I'd done something many people in my family had not done and it had been very difficult and like I said I had made a lot of mistakes but for me that was a day of victory and then the next day (laughs) reality of (laughs) Well, now what?
0: Okay, so you move back home. You're working as a waitress and volunteering at the local fire department. You had some time to make friends and things. You're mm-hmm. trying to figure out what you were doing. I, I pretty much did the same thing. I graduated oh. and moved back home. After I was class president, I gave the, the speech at graduation. And my father's like, great job. What are you going to do next, son? And I'm like, can I move back home? And I was home for a little while trying to figure out life. You were doing similar things, working, volunteering at the fire Mm -hmm. department, hanging out with friends. Your dad wasn't really pleased with that, was he?
1: (laughs) He was okay with it for a few months. And then I was in a comfort zone, and he could see that. Because if you remember, I didn't even want to leave home to go to college. Mm -hmm. I had made this whole plan to go to a community college next door. The shyness again. Life was very scary for me. My dad started to recognize that I had become complacent, comfortable, was getting a little much, too much embedded in the community. Now, wonderful town and wonderful people, but the only career you could have there was working at the prison Mm. or working as a 911 dispatcher, pretty much. Those were the main, unless you were a farm farmer or worked on one of the farms that was around. He one day called me and he's very direct. And he said, so what's your next step? What's your next plan? And I was like, for what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm like, I'm making pocket change as a waitress, enough to play darts and pool at the local bar. And, you know, I'm I'm all good. And he's like, no, you're not. He said, what are you going to do? He said, you're not going to live here forever. And he did not mean that in a mean way at all. Yeah. But he was just saying he's always wanted more for me. He had dreamed of going to college. My mom is the smartest person in the family, and she never got the chance. He never got the chance. He said, I want to see you start applying to some kind of program above a bachelor's, and I want to see you going to graduate school and figuring this out. And I hung up and was like... I can't say the word, but oh crap. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, you got to figure out what to do next. I
1: now have to figure out what to do next.
0: Okay, let's end it right here for now, and we'll pick this back up after the break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Gracie King about making her way into graduate education and the surprises, twists, and turns she found on the way. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Welcome back, y'all. Today, we're talking with Dr. Gracie King, professor at Nashville State, about her own education journey. Gracie, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate the opportunity.
0: because I want to hear about your experience in graduate school. Before the break, we heard, you know, you graduated college, you're back home, settled in. Your father said, not so fast. I want you to go out there and to achieve more. A lot of people might not know what it's like to actually study science and train to be a scientist as they kind of pursue higher education and college degrees. Talk to me about what that was like for you when you were going through the graduate school application process.
1: So, that was more difficult back then. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a library, had to drive a little, actually about 60 miles to get to a library where I could look up potential graduate programs. And I just, instead of cold calling, I started just sending out letters. And one school that responded uh, was the College of William and Mary. They sent me an application packet, I filled it in and I sent it back, and I received a letter that I have to this day from Dr. Stanton Hogerman, who was the chair at the time, telling me that they rejected me. I did not get in. Hmm. I didn't have the GPA. I had taken the GRE, but had not studied for it at all. because. I don't know if you're picking up on this. <laughs> my, my learning curve's kind of steep and I make I, I basically learn by making awful mistakes. okay. He wrote over a page of we didn't accept you because. And he he was very specific for the you know about the reasons. And instead of stopping there, he continued with, but don't give up. Mm-hmm. He actually used those words, but don't give up if you. And then he laid out a roadmap. He said, if you retake the GRE and get a particular score on the biology portion. And then he also advised me to take one or two um, biology classes somewhere. Mm. And he said, if you can get A's in those classes, that will bring your GPA up above a 3.0, which is what they needed as their minimum. And remember, I only had a Mm 2.78. Bluefield State College was in Princeton, West Virginia, which was about an hour and a half away. And so in between shifts and when I wasn't working, I signed up for a microbiology class down there and went to that class, uh, took it extremely seriously, and basically started to get focused and understand the big picture, which I had not before. And I reapplied. I I clung to that letter, I would take it out at least once or twice a week, and I'd read it to make sure it was real, to make sure that he really said, if I did these things, I could do this.
0: It's interesting, so You see, so in undergrad you have an angel who kind of helps you, you yes. lost your scholarship, they help, they pay, yes. they, and help you graduate, and then you have this this, this administrator for yes. William and, & William and Mary, who doesn't know you, but you feel like knew you, and saw you, mm-hmm. and gives you this wonderful advice. Most rejection letters are not that specific. No. <laughs> They're like, sorry, you couldn't come in. Good luck next time or kick rocks. Mm-hmm. In this case, he sensed something and he inspired you to get focused. And here you are at William & Mary. What was that like at William & Mary? Did you continue to have wonderful professors and guide or, guidance like that? Or did you run into some people who maybe should consider their career in being a professor as another change because they weren't effective or helpful.
1: Well, again, me and my poor decision-making uh, skills, I chose a lab to work in. So when you go to graduate school for science, you ha- you you choose a primary investigator, um, someone who is running their own lab and has their own research projects. And you go to them and you ask, "Well, are you willing to take me on? Can I work in your lab? And there was a new faculty member there And what she was studying really interested me because it was brain development. What I did not consider because I didn't know, I didn't know any better is you also need to consider the person who's running the lab, your mentor. The red flag was when I first went for my interview with her, she made negative comments about my accent. Hmm. And she also said that she'd never had a student from the South succeed in any of the labs at places she had been.
0: So she got a Southern bias when you introduced yourself to her.
1: Because she said our the, Southern, the South's public education system was not up to par. Hmm. So me being me was like, huh, well, this is odd, but I really want to work on the brain. And I just wouldn't take no. And I mean, I didn't force my way, but I think she thought that I would quit within two weeks. And I didn't. Our interactions became basically where she left me alone, Mm. and I figured out on my own what to do. I started to succeed in her lab, but one thing I remember that has most influenced me as a teacher, and I'm sorry, I know that's an abrupt transition, is that our relationship had gotten to the part where as part of my, I had to present at journal club was what it was called, present scientific papers to a community of peers and other faculty, Mm -hmm. and That presentation, I had no training on how to give a talk, and I made such a mess of it standing up there and just muddling my way through. I remember just talking about how exciting luciferase was because it glowed in the dark. Well, that's not the way scientists talk. Mm. And she was eating an apple, and she got up in the middle of my presentation, said nothing. She glared at me and threw the apple in the trash can really loud, and it was one of those metal trash cans. It rattled as she walked out the door and slammed the door behind her. I had to finish somehow, and I did, even though I just wanted to run and hide and cry. But a gentleman who was also a new faculty member there, he taught ecology. As he was leaving, he looked at me and he said, I want you to make an appointment and come see me this week. And he spent an hour and 45 minutes walking me through how to give a good presentation, how to communicate information with other people, especially scientific information, how to talk about figures, how to break down some of the technical jargon so that your audience understood you. Because in science, you can become master of these very small focused domains, especially the vocabulary. And so he taught me how to navigate that visually, How to, you know, make sure, simple things that most people probably take for granted, how to use large font, how to be clear, don't clutter. And then he told me the next week to come back and give him a presentation. How'd that go? It went great. And he made a few more suggestions and tweaks, and he looked at me and he said, I think you're ready to go on your own. But if he had not intervened, I'm not sure I would have ever graduated or gone anywhere because...
0: Of the difficulty you had and the the lack of support. So again, a third person. Yes. (laughs) Where did you get your PhD?
1: At University of Nevada, Reno. Okay. Um, I worked at University of Michigan for two years and it was so dang cold. That was as much as I could take. So I moved to University of Nevada, Reno with the person I was working with at University of Michigan because he and his wife moved and got faculty positions there. Mm. And I worked there as a lab technician until 2002 because in 2001, my dad had a heart attack and it was, it was a serious one and he lived, but watching what happened and how close someone gets to death and what's going through their mind, which a lot of times maybe is Regret, or I wish I'd done this. Maybe Mm -hmm. I wish I'd done that. Mm -hmm. Not just my dad, but other people I've known. What are going to be my regrets on my deathbed? And what can I do about it? Because I had promised myself after that, I will not die. Again, overreaching. (laughs) Everybody's going to die with some regrets. But I said, I'm going to minimize them. And so that is when I talked to the chair of the department and I said, look, I am much older than your normal graduate student, because by then I was 31.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm definitely not your ideal candidate, but would you let me apply to the graduate school? And I did. And you got in. And I got in.
0: What did it mean for you, seeing that your dad came so close to death, and seeing how much your parents sacrificed for you, to have your education and how important it was to them. How much of your parents journey was on your mind as you were coming to this decision?
1: A lot. It was almost all I thought about. Mm-hmm. Some people may not realize and this is something I actually can relate to in some of my students that I teach today. When you're the first person in your family to go to college or get the chance at higher education, even if it is unspoken and even if your, your parents, your family don't mean it, you carry this large weight. And that weight is, I just cannot fail. I have to make them proud. Part of my decision to go to graduate school, the largest part was me wanting no regrets, but I have to admit there was a a portion that was, I really want to make them proud. Mm -hmm. I really want them to think, I'm not a failure that all of their hope that they put in me and buying those encyclopedias when I was five months old and my mom reading to me and my brother every single night until she was hoarse and all the trips to the library where we had to hitchhike because we didn't have a car. And, you know, my mom uh, bumming rides from friends or not bumming rides, but, you know, asking neighbors, can Mm -hmm. you please take us to the library? All of that was going through my mind that, I couldn't let them down. And and you didn't? No, because mm-hmm. by then I was really fired up.
0: Mm-hmm. Fired up and yes. you went in, got your PhD. Yes. Then you came to Vanderbilt to teach.
1: Well, for my postdoc. So after you complete your research projects, you're expected to do what's called a postdoctoral fellowship. And it's it's a transition period between your PhD where you're more closely supervised mm-hmm. And becoming traditionally the person who's in charge of the lab. And that's actually a huge change in skill set and mindset and everything else. So, the postdoctoral time is supposed to be that transition point where you're learning to be more independent, you're learning to write grants, you're learning how to do all the things. So, my postdoctoral fellowship was half research and half teaching neuroanatomy to, okay. the, to the second year brain and behavior medical school course with Dr. Jeanette Norton as my mentor.
0: I understand that that program, solo teaching a four hour lecture, that's what you did?
1: Once. Well, three times, but... Um, Dr. Jeanette Norton and Dr. Derek Rebau were the teachers and organizers, and doctors came in to give guest lectures. So the first, it's a three-year program, and so the first year, I took the course and had to pass the course, and that was not trivial. Mm. Um, I, that was That was humbling. The second year, I helped her grade and also helped maybe organize some of the material, the third year, I was tasked with preparing a neurogenetics lecture, basically the genetics of neurobehavior, like behavioral disorders and um, neurodegenerative disorders, anything that affected the brain that was genetically related. Mm-hmm. And yes, that ended up being a four-hour lecture to the 110. Vanderbilt Medical School students, which, by the way, each one of them, a quarter of their brain was probably 10 times smarter than mine. (laughs) That was very, very intimidating. I did it. I I, I poured my heart and soul into it. It it was a passion project for me. It was one of my better memories.
0: Now, we reached out to Jeanette Norton. She wasn't able to be here with us today, but she did write to us, and when we asked her about your time there in the lecture, and this is what she says, Gracie may have been nervous but you would have never known it. She was organized, guided students in understanding an extremely complicated subject, responded to their questions with respect and clarity, and provided outstanding examples. Frankly, her lectures were as good or better than any lectures I had heard from far more seasoned professionals in my more than 30 years teaching, reflecting her natural gift as a teacher. And even though her lectures were excellent, the next year she sought to improve them demonstrating one of the most important characteristics of truly outstanding teachers, the desire to always be better. How you feel hearing that from your mentor?
1: I'm about to cry. Um, She was amazing. She shaped everything that I do, every minute I have in class is shaped by her. I watched her and I absorbed, and I don't even know if she knew how much I absorbed, not just of what she did in the classroom, but for me, what was more important was what she did outside of the classroom when she talked to students, when they asked her questions. Probably the most important lesson, oh, I have so many lessons Jeanette Norton taught me. Um, she, Dr. Norton made a point. I mean, she taught the content. She didn't even have to look at a book. She's an, she's a walking encyclopedia, but she invited in guests and the guests were family members or people who suffered from something wrong with their nervous system. And so, for example, she had three families come in who had had children die of brain tumors. She had two young people come in who had chromosomal defects and she had them speak. So you could interact with this, you know, this young man and this young lady and you, the students got to see them as people, as human beings, and their family came to also show the other side of the the challenge and exhaustion that came with raising these children. Mm-hmm. She had somebody come in from a group about grief. Sometimes she would get complaints from the medical students on her, re- her evaluations that this was wasting their time, that they were there to learn about the brain and the nervous system. Sometimes just a few students. Yeah. And she said, I bring in someone to talk about grief, because they're going to be doctors, and they're going to be speaking with families when people that these families love have died, and these people are in the beginning of grief. She said, the doctors themselves, these students when they become doctors will suffer grief and they don't know it yet, they're all young, they're all very healthy. But even sometimes, despite their best efforts, they may become attached to a patient who dies. They're going to suffer through grief. And she said, I want to plant that seed. She said, I want them to know that what they're learning in medical school is not just what's in a book, that it's a person, that they will be treating people. People are not always just words to memorize or ideas to know. And she taught me in that lesson, and and I remember when those students complained, her also teaching me, and this is my final point, because this is what I keep in my mind every day when I teach at Nashville State Community College. She said out of 110 students, she said, there may only be two people who really internalize what I'm teaching them that's not in the books. But those two people, those 10 people, they're going to go out and they're going to touch more people. And those people are going to touch even more. And it's, just, it's a, a, a ripple effect, a snowball. One person is worth putting your heart and soul into because you do not know who that person's going to interact with.
0: Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk more about your career at Nashville State Community College. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Gracie King about what it's like to teach today at Community College post-COVID and how she works to help all of her students become successful. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna. And this is Nashville. We're here with Dr. Gracie King, professor of anatomy and physiology at Nashville State Community College. She's been talking with us about her experience as a student and how she found her way to her true passion, teaching Gracie. Thanks so much for this conversation. I really have been enjoying it. Okay, so You've been a student at many universities and taught at Vanderbilt and Beaumont before finding your current home at Nashville State Community College. Tell me a little bit about NSCC and the role that community colleges in general play in higher education.
1: I am very proud to teach at Nashville State Community College. Community colleges, I didn't realize this at first, I'm not going to pretend I did, but over my years of teaching there, I have learned how valuable they are. Um, Community colleges serve as a bridge and I'm just a big fan of bridges. Um, Not an obstacle, but a bridge. Community colleges are, the word community is what's the most important part of that and sometimes people forget that. We serve the community, meaning if You maybe cannot afford to quit your job, go live in a dormitory or, you know, on campus at a four-year university, which to be quite honest, often is a matter of luck. Were you born in the right family? Were you, you know, born into the right Mm -hmm. area? We offer you the opportunity to take those first steps towards your educational journey. And that can look like a certificate, which would be equivalent to about eight classes, six or eight classes. Basically, the take home message is some people for their jobs or for advancement, that's what they need and that's what they want. And that's great. We also offer an AAS degrees, which are two year. You go to college for two years, taking the equivalent of freshman and sophomore courses, but with focused classes that lead you to a more focused degree. But then we have our AS, the Associate of Sciences or your AA, Associate of Arts. And that would be where students, especially younger students, but sometimes adult returning students who never got the chance to go to college, um, can come and take their base courses, get the degree and then transfer to a four year university or a four-year college. We have articulation agreements with most of the colleges and universities in the area. So for me, the large picture standing back is, imagine you're trying to cross a river and the water's just too deep and flowing too fast, but you really want to get to that other side because you can see on the other sides better and you have more opportunities. We put that bridge in place that you can take, you know, start that journey. At a community college, you'll have smaller class sizes. That's what I actually, to be honest, really leaned into and embraced. I get to know every student in my class. I, I get to know their names.
0: The fact that you have these small, intimate classes, you do get to know your students. Do you feel like you're able to pay the kind of attention to them, not only as their educator, but as a human being to help them in the best situation to get the most out of the education that they're getting at Nashville State?
1: I try my best. That's one thing I'm acutely aware of. I might not be the best teacher. I might not be the, you know, the smartest, but when I look out over my students, I see hope, but I also see the fear that's often in their eyes at the unknown. We teach many first-generation college students. I know what it was like to step into a classroom for the first time or even just try to simply register for classes, not understanding what the word bursar meant, Mm. not understanding what prerequisite meant, not even understanding um, study skills. My high, high school, public school education for me was not challenging enough that I learned good study skills. And so what I see is a group of people who have so much potential, and to be honest, are such wonderful individual human beings that I want to be, if possible, that person who says, don't give up, you can do this. Like Dr. Stanton Hogerman wrote in that rejection letter from William & Mary. Mm -hmm. You can do this. You can do this. And I also want to be the person that when somebody comes to me and says, oh no, I started out in this major and I've taken these classes, but you know what? I'm finding out I really don't want to be a nurse. I really don't want to do this. I want to be the person to look at them and go, that is absolutely wonderful. Because you have come to a self-realization that sometimes takes people years or even decades to come to.
0: If they ever do. If
1: they ever do. Mm -hmm. Look at you. Look at what you've learned going through school and classes. You've learned something about yourself. So now let's sit down and let's talk about what lights you up. What really, what are you passionate about? What is something that you really like doing and, and love? And let's see if we can parlay that into a degree and a career.
0: You know, that's a question I think a lot of people have been asking themselves since the pandemic. What lights them up? What are they passionate about? You mentioned seeing the hope in the eyes of students, but also fear in the eyes of students. How have the eyes of students changed since COVID?
1: What I see is a loneliness and a disconnectedness in some, Mm -hmm. in others, almost a desperation and in others, a hopelessness where I think they've just kind of given up. There, there's so much stress in their life that they're doing this because they think they should or somebody told them, but at the same time, I don't think they have any belief that they can actually get through it. And and that's not all of the students. These students also are are great and they have that fire burning and that, you know, that they they want to be there but underneath that is an underlying uncertainty. Mm. I guess that should have been my word. Ignore all the other words. It's an (laughs) uncertainty. And we sometimes talk in class about how this world was shaken and doesn't seem to have settled yet.
0: No, it hasn't.
1: At all. And many of my students saw family members, and I remember experiencing this with the students during COVID in my classes where family members were passing away unexpectedly, where parents were losing their jobs because they worked in recreation industries or at hotels and in businesses that were shut down, which then destabilized their family financially, and then they had to move, which destabilized them geographically. All the while they're trying to stay in this class and finish. And We have to keep in mind that for these students, it didn't go away. It wasn't a magic, okay, we don't have to worry now. It has affected and put its tentacles into pretty much every part of their life.
0: So how do you, as their educator, their professor in this, Mm -hmm. how do you attempt to, I mean, you can't wipe away all of their pain. You can't wipe away all of their trauma. But you can assuage their worries and concern just enough so that when they're with you for these classes, this magical time of education, they can have a little bit more hope when they leave the class every day. How do you do that?
1: I talk about not anatomy physiology (laughs) things, Um, Mm. not the whole time, but I'm saying I try to interject. I try to organically because of certain questions student asks students ask, bring up topics such as, to be quite honest, I talk about failure a lot. It mine is a very difficult, challenging course. It traditionally has had the the label of a weed out class. Mm -hmm. And what I talk to my students about is I try to empower them with the knowledge that failure is multifaceted. Basically, no one should feel like a failure that, for example, you don't pass my class. That means nothing and reflects nothing on you as a human being. Absolutely nothing at all. I also share my story with them when they really seem to be getting discouraged. And I said, believe it or not, your teacher that's standing up here, failed classes, got Fs, D minuses, C minuses. I said, your teacher up here." Got rejection letters. Your teacher has made some really bad decisions that had long-term consequences. But I said, I finally found my way and I finally found my place and my joy. And I said, for some of you, you might find your place and your joy in, in a year. Some of you five, some of you might be 50. But I said, what's really important is that you keep moving forward. Even when you think you fail or are going backwards, you have to keep moving and you have to keep waking up and you have to keep trying because it is easy to feel overwhelmed with the uncertainty where it gets to the point that you want to give up because you feel it's hopeless. So I just try to share. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but wouldn't it be something if we really kicked butt today? Hmm. And eventually you're going to find your groove.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour with Dr. Gracie King, professor at Nashville state community college about her education journey and what it's like teaching today. So you're helping these students, giving them this, this advanced education as they enter into the world of nursing or, or further studies in, in biology and science and medicine, but you're also helping their souls and their spirits too at this very important time. You're like a mentor to all of them. You, you mentioned a little bit about the mentors who have helped you out. How does it feel to be a mentor yourself to this, educa- to this new generation?
1: I guess I really didn't think of myself in that role, hmm. so I don't, uh, I hope I am doing as good of a job as all of these people have throughout my life who held out a hand in understanding and a hand in, hey, you know what, I can see you're really close, but you're not quite there, but let me give you a little nudge. Yeah. And I hope I can be that for who whoever life puts in my orbit that I can and if i can if i can be that for my students I, i'm definitely trying because people are not lost causes sometimes people just need someone to be there to say hey come in my office and talk to me mm-hmm. i see you I think you have so much potential and you probably don't even realize it. Let's talk.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so given that final question for you, your mom and your dad played huge major roles Mm -hmm. in your life in these moments in your journey. Anything you'd like to say to them?
1: That mom and dad, it may not have been obvious, but I saw both of you always. I saw what you were doing even if I didn't say thank you. I saw the work both of you put in, I I saw the sacrifice, I I saw that you both gave up some of your dreams to make sure that my brother and I had the opportunities that you didn't. And I hope... um, that I'm doing you justice because you set a high bar. Mm. And I love you both.
0: Gracie, Dr. King, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thanks for talking with me and just being being awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really, <laughs> you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the over 80 programs and financial assistance available at Nashville State Community College, you can check out their website. That's our show for today, everybody. Thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Catherine Cicis. It was directed by our senior producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our fearless board operator and technical director is Liv Lombardi. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. Jeanette Norton. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Akalona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.